0: Carol Zerniel. Carol, as many of you know, is the chair of the National Council on Aging, a prestigious national organization based in Washington, D.C., that focuses on and tackles a number of issues involving aging. She also serves as the executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. And a couple of weeks ago, she helmed a a wonderful fundraiser for the WellMed Charitable Foundation, the uh, annual golf tournament out at TPC. What a great
1: day that was! That is, you know, this is my favorite time of year. And you don't play golf, and I don't play golf, but just being outside and enjoying it. See, you know, in San Antonio we have two seasons: summer and not summer. And so it didn't; it was not summer that day. And that day, we were really yeah. enjoying it. In fact,
0: we were cold in the morning.
1: Well, Fifty-five degrees. Yeah, which there's somebody's cool. out there laughing at that comment. <laughs> but that yeah. was cold for us.
0: Well, it was. Uh, it was a great day, and. Uh, Jimmy Keenan, uh, one of the uh, women executives who was there, uh, retired uh, general, uh, outstanding deputy uh, surgeon general of the army. Uh, turns out she met her husband on the golf course. So that's that,
1: right. So for all you non-golfers nice. out there, there's hope. <laughs> there may be <laughs> maybe something out there on that. The golf. grass is always greener. Oh,
0: I don't think she really said that. We're going to talk in just a couple of moments with Susan Peschen. Uh, She is an expert on not only Alzheimer's disease, but a variety of issues involved in aging. She serves as president and CEO at the Alliance for Aging Research, and we'll find out what's hot, what's not when it comes to that kind of research. Uh, But before we do that, uh, there's been a lot written of late about the old five-second rule, which we all know. Food drops, if you pick it up before five seconds, you can eat it. And it's safe, right?
1: Well, some people think it's safe. Apparently, those are mostly men. (laughs) (laughs) And
0: and women who drop (laughs) M&Ms.
1: Apparently. (laughs) So, you know, the New York Times was another one of the many places that we did see this (laughs) five-second rule. um, And there was a food microbiologist at Rutgers University, Professor Schaffner, who actually did a two-year study. Dropping wow. food. So for two years, he didn't, you know, I do this every day. And <laughs> I had, nobody has paid me a dime to drop <laughs> drop food on the floor. <laughs> so, you know, what I thought was interesting was he dropped different kinds of food oh. on different kinds of floors. So, um, As only a
0: researcher would.
1: Well, yeah, you have to do that. So the different types of floor, stainless steel, or I should say surfaces. So dropping it on stainless steel, ceramic tile, wood. And carpet, and then the different kinds of food. Cut watermelon. Don't drop that anywhere. It's just sticky. Um, bread, b- bread, buttered bread, and strawberry gummy candy.
0: He didn't <laughs> say whether they had cats in those homes. No, he
1: didn't. And they were they were dropped from a height of five inches, which is really not very no, far. No, it's nothing. You don't get the splat effect with that. So they, you know, they tested the they tested how long they were on the on the floor, less than a second, five seconds, 30 seconds, and 300 seconds. Um, And there were 128 possible combinations. You know, this is tough measuring here. Uh, And what they found was, okay, it doesn't really matter how long it's on the floor. The minute it hits the, uh, minute, the nanosecond it hits the floor, it's going to pick up some stuff. Some germs, and, and you know, of course, they laced their surfaces with food poisoning kinds <laughs> of things, which most of us don't have all over our house. No. Um, but what I, what I what I liked was it it did de- it depended more on the surface that it was dropped on than the and the type of food than it did how long. Ah. So yes, if you leave. A banana on the floor all day long is it going to pick up more germs? Of course. Things <laughs> are going to crawl towards it. If it's just laying there. <laughs> um, banana. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> but um if if it's, you know, if you pick it up immediately, it doesn't have as much as if you leave something laying there. But carpet actually had less less stuff stick to the food cuz it's sticking to the carpet oh. than the other surfaces, which I you know, you always think, ooh, carpet, carpet's dirty. But it I guess the carpet absorbs the stuff, um, and so not as much transferred to the food.
0: Unless they have a dog or a cat.
1: Yeah, and, and I will tell you that the researchers said he might pick up an M&M on the floor, but if a piece of watermelon drops anywhere, he is it is going in the trash because the sticky, you know, the water, it immediately, trans it picked up the worst of anything. So the hard candy didn't pick up as many germs then as the watermelon.
0: I-, I saw another piece on the same topic by a-, a physician who said, you know, he didn't pay any attention to it. We need to be exposed to bacteria to continue to build up our resistance. And so drop it, he eats it.
1: So, drop it, he eats it? Yes. His point was... Anywhere? Anywhere? Uh,
0: Well, apparently. Well,
1: I mean, yes, expose it to germs, but, you know... I'm not... That yeah, far we're not advocating. No. So you, they were looking. They did find that men were much more likely when looking at men or women, and I, just a, yeah. a verbal study of would you eat something you dropped on the floor? That men were like m- right. much more likely to eat something off true. the floor <laughs> than women,
0: especially if it's something you like.
1: <coughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah yes, it's, like we go back to the M and M's again. That, exactly. So there you All go, right. folks. If you get carpet on your floor, you know you got more time—a little more time than the rest of us.
0: When you look at TV ads for medications to. Treat and prevent osteoporosis. It's always women portrayed with that disease. Well, can men get it?
1: Well, you know that yeah, there is a reason because women disproportionately get osteoporosis because of menopause and the, the changes in the you know the hormones. But it, yes, men can get it. Um, and so you know, the article in the New York Times was from Jane Brody um, was talking about that a lot of times it doesn't get diagnosed. Um, you know, I can tell you as a woman who has a family history of osteoporosis, um, you know, I, they were like, oh, you have osteopor- I, you know, I dropped a 2 by 4 on my toe and it shattered, which I'm not sure, I mean, I'm sorry. A two-by-four is a pretty big piece of wood, uh, and at any height that such as it was... And you're
0: pretty small. And,
1: yeah, I mean, I thought I should get a little bit of... They should have cut me some slack, yeah. but, but they were like, oh, no. And they were right. I You know, I do have some risk of osteoporosis, but I, I also know some men that have it. But men, you know, a lot of times they don't get, um, when they've had a break... They don't get tested for bone density to see if they do have osteoporosis. And, and there are a lot of medications um, and conditions that can increase the likelihood of getting osteoporosis, which I, you know, I wasn't really aware of. So health conditions, if you have rheumatoid arthritis, um, if you have Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, a lot of the medications that you take for those um, increase the risk, you know, preg- like Pregnozone. Uh, which is used for arthritis, Uh, it can increase the risk. Um, The antidepressants, um, you know, like Prozac and Zoloft uh, can increase the risk. So, you know, the the main thing is, is that if you're a man and you're over the age of 50, you know, about 20 percent, Of um, you know broken bones are going to be because of osteo uh, will be because of osteoporosis in men and one third of hip fractures will occur because of osteoporosis in men so it's pretty high Um, let's not we just should stop categorizing everything because men and women can get osteoporosis uh, and you got to just add that to to the checklist of one more thing that could go wrong.
0: (laughs) Good thing to know, and if you're listening, you're listening right now to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernia. We'll be talking in just a couple of moments with Susan Peschen, who is the president and CEO at the Alliance for Aging Research, and we'll talk with her about what's hot, what's not, in addition to Alzheimer's and other diseases that impact seniors. Uh, another question I have for Carol, sticking with the osteo theme here
1: which means bones that's our big little well, our, b- our latin, big uh, our latin, latin um in what do you call it? i don't know the word for the intro part of the first part of the word osteo bone. there you go that was okay. i like that go ahead keep going <laughs>
0: So, talk to me about <laughs> osteoarthritis.
1: Osteoarthritis. So, that's the common, that's the most common kind of arthritis. When people usually say, I the have arthritis. The prefix is what you were thinking. Yeah. The, yeah the pre. Thank you. The pre- prefix. I would have gotten there eventually. I know. Um, yeah, but that's 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 the kind of arthritis that m- most people think about. Rather versus rheumatoid arthritis, it's ninety five percent, and that's that's the kind that causes knee replacements and and hip replacements. Uh, and you know what, what we know is that a lot of people reduce their activity because of the pain of arthritis. And what we also know is that it's that inactivity. That actually makes the the pain worse. It's
0: counterintuitive. You ought to do more.
1: It is counterintuitive. So you know what the with this particular article again from the New York Times and Jane Brody, we're talking about. That's where know, I'm going to
0: be in my next life.
1: Is Jane Brody? Jane Brody. Okay, excellent. Yeah. She will she will enjoy having you take over for her <laughs> in the you. next life. <laughs> um, but it, so the exercise that keeps the joints lubricated, and obviously you don't you've got joint problems. You don't want to just. You know overdo it but doing nothing actually increases the pain but for every pound um that you increase your weight the stress on the knee joint is three to five times greater and so um, some researchers in norway tracked 1600 people with healthy knees for 10 years and those who were overweight or were obese were two to three times more likely to be diagnosed with osteoarthritis of the knee than those with normal weight. Um, and so, you know, what they're saying is kind of the usual rec- exercise routine that you, anybody would say, you know, we need to do uh, walking and some weightlifting, some stretching 30 to 50 minutes um, a week.
0: Well, this is a stereotype, but I didn't think there were very many overweight Scandinavians. <laughs>
1: Okay, I can't even I can't even answer that question in in this particular time period. Okay. Ask me after the election, and I will tell you. All right, um, <laughs> yeah, my brain is so, overworked. I know it's. I, I can't say anything about anybody. Um, but you know, insufficient <laughs> exercise it gives you poor flexibility and weak muscles. And um, one of the best exercises to do besides swimming, if you have osteoarthritis, is tai chi. So oh, it's you know a it's, martial it, art, yeah, which is the you know it's the it's the pretty one in in right. the movies that people are doing in the park, it, right? Where they're in, because you got those balance shifts, so it, it does actually strengthens huh. your core and, and get your balance better, um, and it relieves pain and stiffness. In the knees and hips so that's the you know and it's pretty to watch it's fun to it do it is pretty so tai chi um and if you if you are a caregiver for someone who has indeed has osteoarthritis or arthritis of any kind uh, arthritissupplies.com and aidsforarthritis.com are places you can go to get those little widgets that help button a shirt, thread a needle, you can use as kitchen tools, um, all those things that are, are become very difficult. And we know that fingers aren't weight-bearing, you know, it's not like your knees and your hips, um, but they, they. it's very common to get the arthritis in your hands as well. So,
0: Absolutely. So
1: little tips there. We
0: don't have much time left, and we can cover this again uh, in a week or so, but there's still confusion on the part of providers and uh, uh, nursing facilities and uh, rehab facilities uh, on the question of if you are getting services and you have uh, you're covered by Medicare and you're not improving, can they discontinue services?
1: Well, and I would very much like I, we, we need to take this up again um, on the next show, but just in the short time that we have, if you are a caregiver, your loved one is dis, you know discharged from a hospital to a nursing home, and they tell you that the person has to be dismissed, Medicare is not going to cover it anymore because they're not improving. And that is not correct. Um, Medicare must continue to pay to keep your loved one from getting worse or to maintain what they have. If you believe that stopping the physical therapy that they're getting at the skilled facility is helping them to maintain or prevent them from getting worse, Medicare will pay for it. That rule never existed, that they had to get better, if they had to continue to improve, never existed. And CMS, there was a class action suit that said they must educate everyone to stop enforcing a rule that never existed.
0: We'll talk about how in the world that happened to begin with. We're going to talk in just a moment with Susan Peschen, who uh, will join us. She is president and CEO at the Alliance for Aging Research. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernial, caregiver SOS on air at 930 a.m., The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010.
2: Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin
0: Eickhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio.
2: What a terrific ride it's been.
0: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything.
2: We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
0: You name a disease, and we've covered it, uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones.
2: Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you
0: like doing radio? Well, one of the nice things about Caregiver SOS on Air, when we promise, we deliver. And we had promised to bring you Susan Peschen, who serves as the president and CEO at the Alliance for Aging Research in Washington, D.C., has a lot of experience in a variety of fields that all relate to aging and seniors and Alzheimer's disease. Uh, we, uh, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. Are just delighted, Susan, to welcome you on Caregiver SOS on Air. Good afternoon.
3: Good afternoon, and thank you so much for having me.
0: Tell us a little bit about what the Alliance for Aging is.
3: Sure. Um, The Alliance for Aging Research was founded back in 1986, so we're actually celebrating our 30th anniversary this year, although I I keep telling everyone we only feel 29. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Yes. And uh, we, were, we were founded uh, to really focus on the, the benefits of research as a way to enhance the experience of aging and health. A lot of focus up until that point was on direct senior services and also on entitlement programs like Medicare and Social Security, and those are all vitally important issues for older adults, but, you know, there was also sort of a burgeoning... Uh, change in uh, in medical research, and we wanted to sort of bring that to the forefront to show that older adults were worth focusing on uh, for for both prevention as well as for intervention for chronic disease and, and infectious disease. And so we've been working now for 30 years and in the area of both public policy and health education.
1: So, you know, when you mentioned prevention, um, for those of us who have been around uh, for the 30 years um yeah you know, that that was that's still in many circles a foreign concept that we would prove do any kind of prevention work with an aging population um but mm-hmm. but as you're looking back at the body you know of all the work uh, over the past 30 years you know what do you think are the most significant things uh the research that you've done or what were the big aha moments that came out of research do you think
3: Oh, absolutely. Well, the Alliance for Aging Research was one of the leading organizations to lead um, the stem cell fights on the Hill in the 1990s um, that really removed some of the restrictions around federal funding for stem cell research, so we were a leading advocate for that. We were one of the leading groups that helped double the funding at the National Institutes of Health. Um, We were one of the leading groups to start the Claude Pepper Institutes around the country, and those institutes are located at uh, about 16 academic centers, and that focus on research to help older adults maintain their independence.
0: Yeah, we have one here in San Antonio.
1: The Claude Pepper Institute.
3: Oh, right, right, yes, uh, of course, San Antonio, yes. Um, And so those, you know, those are some of, you know, the highlights from, from our earliest years. Uh, And since that time, we've really branched out in terms of our expertise. We still very much are leading advocates for NIH funding, and we focus a lot, of course, on one of the institutes there that's called the National Institute on Aging. And they do the majority of the work in Alzheimer's disease, as well as in geriatrics and a whole bunch of different issues at NIA. Um, so we focus on that, but we also have branched out quite a bit to work on a whole variety of issues from geriatric, uh, cardiac disease issues to, uh, healthcare associated infections and vaccines and all of that. But you, I wanted to go back if you guys were okay with it, uh, to talk a bit about the kind of shift to prevention. Sure. Um, so I, I totally agree with you, Carol, that, that, you know, I think that there was reluctance for a number of years. You know, it was always sort of viewed uh, your older adult years as a time of decline and that the purpose of healthcare was just to address the decline as symptoms came up. And it was interesting, as as part of the Affordable Care Act and the changes in health care reform, you know, for all of the controversy, I know there's certainly a lot of it that still exists around it, there were good positive changes within the Medicare program, where it was previously viewed as an acute care system to deal with aches and pains as they came up. And they introduced the annual wellness visit, so older adults now have a benefit every year where they can visit their healthcare provider and come up with a prevention plan to talk about what vaccines they need, what screenings they need, ask them about their diet and exercise and a whole variety of issues to focus on that.
0: And the change also incorporated uh, covering vaccines that are preventative, like the new uh, two pneumococcal pneumonia vaccines that are now covered.
3: That's right. And they took away any type of co-pays for those as long as you go to an in-network
2: mm-hmm. provider.
3: So that's absolutely true. There's much more of an emphasis on that. The National Institute on Aging has a great go-for-life program that is really about emphasizing you can start exercising at any age. It's not just good for you when you're a young person or a young adult. But even if you start at, you know, an older age, in your 60s, 70s, even your 80s, it it has beneficial effects. So really trying to educate folks about the importance, not just of cardiovascular exercise, but of, you know, balance and strength. Uh, and all you know, all the different components that, that can help you maintain muscle mass, and you know, and strength in your balance to help you avoid falls as you get older. So there's definitely been a pivot. Um, it's you know, it's sort of slow going in terms of a cultural change within our healthcare system, and I would say within our culture in general. But it is much more geared towards, let's take a look at how you can maintain your health for as long as possible. And that's a really positive change.
0: Now, if you just joined us, she's Susan Peshin, who is the uh, president and CEO at the Alliance for Aging Research. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zerniel, talking about the work of the Alliance and others in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere, looking at the whole concept uh, of trying to age healthy uh, in America today.
1: Well, and I think you know if you we go downstream from what Susan was just talking about in prevention and all this aging research, um, you know where that comes down at our level and the community level is that. That kind of research has transformed our senior centers. And we at the WellMed Charitable Foundation, you know, we operate senior centers in Texas and Florida. And they've really become places where people go to get the false prevention training, where they go to get the exercise um, and all of the, the chronic disease self management program. And it's that emphasis on health and prevention that has totally revitalized what we do on the ground with our senior centers. That's amazing.
3: That's great. and Right, and it's not even just the medical research, but it's also the social sciences research. And senior centers are key for social engagement for older adults. And that's also found to improve health and well-being and certainly mental health as well. Uh, to help keep you vital for as long as possible. And that's a real key thing because, you know, more recent research is showing that the baby boomers are less likely than some of our previous generations to stay socially engaged. Mm -hmm. You know, bridge clubs and church groups and, you know, all the things that some of our parents and grandparents did, they're not quite as popular today. And with the rise in social media and all of that, a lot of times folks tend to stay to themselves a bit more. And what research has shown across the board is social engagement, whether through, you know, kind of those types of engagement groups or volunteering, really helps you stay healthier longer. Um, it it, it uh, generally results in less disability over time because it keeps you moving. you got to get up. you got to get out. Um, So all those things are important as well, as well as the strides that we've made in prevention through medical research.
1: So are you saying that the number of friends that we have on Facebook doesn't really count? (laughs)
3: I'm saying you don't have to put as much emphasis on how many likes you get. Uh, That's you, a relief. Put, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, well, Carol uh, isn't even on Facebook, Facebook
1: at so. All. Yeah, <laughs> so good. I, I'm gonna have friends after real friends after all. Yes, yes.
0: So, so you know, when when I'm looking at your background, Susan, it just it's wonderful to see someone who has not only uh, gone to a couple of great universities—a a B.A. in sociology from Brandeis and a master's in. Uh, health sciences and health policy from Johns Hopkins University. You've actually put that education to use in your professional career.
3: Yes, yes, and I, I feel very privileged. I mean, I, I'm a very lucky individual. I knew uh, all of my grandparents, and I knew two of my great-grandmothers. Um, so I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, I grew up with, with basically with all of them, um, and so I was surrounded by uh, older adults as I was growing up, and I saw the real valuable parts of that, you know, sort of passing down of great recipes and wisdom and, and you know, and just sort of the, the um, respect, you know, that they had in our family. Um, But then I also saw the more challenging parts when they did face struggles within the healthcare system and, you know, cancer and heart issues and dementia, uh, you know, all of the above, and, you know, it it impacted me. So I wanted to go into the issue because they mattered so much to me, and I wanted to see if it was possible to, you know, make a difference in this area. And I don't think... Oh, go ahead. I'm no, sorry. I was going to say,
0: stay with us just a minute. We're going to come right back to you, do a little brief business at our end, and come right back to you as we talk with uh, Susan Pesh I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zernial. By the way, podcasts of all of our shows are available. All you have to do is go to caregiversos.org, and you can find the podcast for uh, this program uh, right here on 930 AM. The answer is where you can hear us live. Well, it is a fascinating field when you look at the field of aging and uh, geriatrics and gerontology. And a couple of uh, folks who are steeped in that are with us. Carol Zorniel, our co-host here on Caregiver SOS on Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Uh, Carol knows a lot about this as well as our guest, uh, Susan Peschen, who is uh, based out of Washington, D.C. And she is with an organization that deals with these issues as well. She's president and CEO at the Alliance for Aging research.
1: Well, Susan, talk a little bit about some of the work that you've done um, in, in Alzheimer's and caregiving. I know um, that you were vice president of public policy with the Alzheimer's Foundation of America, uh, and they're really good about um, helping us, you know, consumers, lay people understand um, some of the, the public policy that's going on. You know, when you look at that, at the work that you've done and where we need to go, you know, what what comes to the top, put top of mind?
3: Well, I think that, uh, you know, there's so many issues that come up with Alzheimer's disease, both for the individuals that are confronted with it as well as their family caregivers and it really is a family issue because you know it takes so much to support somebody that has been diagnosed with the disease um, that it affects everyone around them Uh, and you know i think that we've just sort of scratched the surface in facing the issue as a culture Um, I think that, you know, a couple of decades ago when it was first being recognized, the Alzheimer's Association came about around the same time that our organization did. And at that time, I think there was a lot of view that Alzheimer's disease was perceived as you're losing your mind or you're going senile. And, you know, there's kind of been a swing in the other direction to view it as a neurodegenerative disease, which it very much is. Um, But it is also still very much a mental health issue uh, for the individuals that have it as well as, you know, the folks that are dealing with someone that has the symptoms of it. So I think that uh, we're struggling within uh, the treatment development community. Uh, We, you know, interact with industry and with patient advocacy organizations and academics in the field all the time through a coalition that we run called Accelerate Cure and Treatments for Alzheimer's Disease. Um, And we engage with the Food and Drug Administration to kind of talk about, you know, what are the barriers here in trying to get some treatments. And so there are treatments on two sides, you know, within neurology, to try to get some type of treatment that will either stop the disease from progressing or to prevent it from happening at all. And, you know, many of those trials have not, you know, come to to really create any type of new interventions in the last several years, and that's been, you know, very disappointing for the community and challenging for the community. And at the same time, you have millions of families that are currently dealing with the disease. And there are some symptomatics that exist on the market that have been on the market for a number of decades, but not much new that's come out. Why why is that? um, There are some new products in the pipeline. Uh, You know, again, I think that we struggle in the United States with sort of our balance between wanting something that's disease-modifying versus wanting something to help you know the folks that currently have it to better handle the symptoms of it and it's a complicated disease you know drugs are not the complete answer for it you know you need techniques for families you need to be able to support families in terms of communication with their loved ones uh... in with validation which has you know been around for a very long time and just sort of even teaching the basics and again you know oftentimes there's it's such a devastating disease you want that cure you want that holy grail um, so there's you know there's sort of a bit of a back and forth i can tell you at least at the federal level the national level within industry um, in terms of what to focus on and there's still so much about the disease that that we don't know you know we know some about what some of the common symptoms are that show up in the brain Uh, that you can see on scans, uh, but we still don't have enough of an understanding. And that's, you know, sort of been shown through uh, um, some of the applications that have gone through FDA and and haven't made it through. Um, So we still need to go back to the basics in many ways, sort of start with the the end in mind um, in terms of where we want to go to have an effective treatment.
1: Okay, and we but have we've had to change kinda of, we've we've kind of thought of Alzheimer's as this monolithic disease. Like everybody with Alzheimer's got there exactly the same way. That's right.
3: Which is and, not and true. Mhm. And it's very different, you know, for each family. And I you know, I think that a lot of the Uh, A lot of the folks who are down on the ground, like you're talking about in San Antonio, at your pepper centers and at the senior center level and in adult daycares and also just in family homes, you know, who are on the front lines of this in some ways kind of know more about what matters to the individual that's dealing with the disease and the family around them than, you know, those of us who might Hmm. be a little bit more removed and are sitting in a lab trying to figure out, okay, how can we get rid of this thing for once and all? Um, So it's just, it requires a lot of support, and we need support for the individuals uh, along with the family caregivers. Now, for those of
0: you who just joined us, you're listening to Susan who is the president and CEO at the Alliance for Aging Research. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and I didn't mean to step on your last word there, Susan. Sorry.
3: That's okay. I think uh, the one last thing I wanted to say is I think also sometimes... The thing that we don't think of, you know, is what oftentimes family caregivers need the most. And one thing that I was privileged to uh, participate in was the the vice president's middle class task force. And what we focused on there was really looking at respite, just giving caregivers a break. Uh, Because caregiving can be so intense when it comes to Alzheimer's disease that oftentimes just being able to give the family a break um, in the care is, you know, can provide tremendous relief and also allow that individual to stay in the home that much longer.
1: And so what grew out of that middle class task force related to respite? And this was Vice President Joe Biden that you're speaking of.
3: It was, it was. Well, he he was terrific and wanted to focus uh, to get some more funding both on the National Family Caregiver Support Act, which is a program through um, the Administration on Aging, and also for the National um, Respite Care Act, which is a you know a separate program that provides money at the local level for uh, uh, for local communities to organize their respite and make families. Uh, really sort of make the programs available and make uh, families aware of the programs that are available in their community. And it's called Lifespan Respite because it's not just geared towards older adults. It's for uh, families that are dealing with individuals throughout the lifespan, so for families with children with disabilities um, as well as for older adults that may be dealing with uh, Alzheimer's disease or other types of debilitating condition
0: And there have been some studies on, uh, surprisingly, the number of young people who are caregivers uh, to the parents.
3: Absolutely. Um, there's even, you know, now studies, I mean, there's certainly there's a lot of focus on sandwich caregiving, uh, where individuals are taking care of aging parents as well as they still have kids in the home. And oftentimes those kids, especially if they're teenagers, are involved in the care of right. the grandparents. Right. So, right, I mean, it's a family affair.
1: Well, and I think you really articulated, you know, the struggle that we have, um, you know, because we run caregiver resource centers. We've got five different centers in different cities in Texas. uh, And you know, we hear from especially those that are dealing with Alzheimer's, you know, if you look at the brain of somebody who's had Alzheimer's, you realize the difficulty in curing or reversing a disease that, you know, has taken such a tremendous toll on a brain. And so then you're really hoping for a a vaccine, a prevention. But for those of us who have family members with Alzheimer's, we just want to stop it and none of us want to get it. So, yeah. you know, it makes us all, I think I think all Alzheimer's caregivers think that they are also getting Alzheimer's while they're caring for their loved ones. I'm
0: waiting for the magic bullet.
3: I, I hear you. It's a scary thing to watch. I've watched it in my own family, and you do. You think about yourself. You think about your kids. Um, it's not something that you would certainly want to wish on anybody. And you want relief for the person who's going through it. And it's frustrating, too, you know. Um, the communication is tough. You want to argue with the person and correct them. You want them to remember. And, you know, really what's best in the situation is just to kind of go with the flow, as they say.
0: I want to shift gears for a minute. we got about... 2 minutes left but Carol you have okay. something well, I was just
1: going before we I went to ask her about the the summit yeah you were talk, before we went on air you you were talking about a conference that's coming up next year to kind of deal with those two sides of the thinking the research and the what can we do now for in October first. of
0: 2017 NIH conference mm-hmm. what, what is yeah, that
1: it's really really
3: exciting it's the first ever care Alzheimer's disease and related dementias care research summit and it's to focus on research related to the care. Of people with Alzheimer's disease as well as their family caregivers so what types of interventions are available whether they be pharmacologic or non pharmacologic that can help folks that are dealing with the disease right now as we speak so it's you know the typical summits that have been occurring at the NIH over the last few years as part of the National Alzheimer's Project Act have focused on you know finding the cure and the disease modification and that is crucial as we've talked about but this will be the first ever summit that's looking at are there better ways in the here and now that we can offer care and support to the individuals that are dealing with this disease struggling with it right now
1: well and I think that's that's huge because we do know that there are areas of improvement we do know oftentimes dementia is underdiagnosed in older people and that the The caregivers never, you know, they don't notice the caregiver. The caregiver is not in the medical record. The caregiver isn't part of that care team. Um, And there are a lot of things we could do just to improve the whole experience. Correct. Correct. Of of dealing with the disease. So
0: we will keep track of that and perhaps get you back on as we get closer to that date. And I did want to take just a moment uh, as we uh, say thank you and and send you off. But before we do that, uh, you spent about 10 years with the Consumer Federation of America uh, working at the Violence Policy Center on gun violence. And one of the things you were involved with apparently was the Domestic Violence Offender Act. It drives me crazy when you see in San Antonio and across this country uh, domestic violence, and, and there's no age limit. It can be seniors, it can be young people, where one, you know, the spouse kills the other spouse. And
3: mm-hmm. it's
0: usually a gun. hmm.
3: hmm. So
0: you spent time working on that.
3: I did. Um, I spent, yeah, about a decade. And, you know, it's obviously still a huge problem. I think I think folks are getting to a breaking point. I hope that they are uh, where we want to look at it as not just a problem of, you know, the bad people, but looking at what are the types of weapons that they have access to and what we can do about you know, reducing the gun violence in this country because it's unprecedented compared right. to any other developed country on the planet, so I hear you, and I've been down your way uh, with the concealed carry law down there and uh, definitely feelings run, run, run deep and run strong in the state of Texas
0: uh, that's a good way right.
1: to put yeah, it, Yeah, that was too. nice. Oh, yeah. That was very polite. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>
0: you you spent enough time in Washington to understand <laughs> the politics. Hey, thanks so much for coming on. You've been a delight to talk to. And if folks want to learn more uh, about the work of your organization, uh, the Alliance for Aging Research, you have a website.
3: We do. It's agingresearch.org. Please come visit us.
0: Cool. Agingresearch.org. Thanks so much.
3: Thank you. Thank you both for having me. You take
0: care. Bye-bye. Uh, Susan Peschen, who is the president and CEO at the Alliance for Aging Research. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Up next, Take 10 with uh, Dr. Jamie Heisman, joins us here on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010.
2: Has it really been that long that we've been together? Dr. Robin
0: Eickhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio.
2: What a terrific ride it's been.
0: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything.
2: We've talked about medical issues. We've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
0: You name a disease, and we've covered it uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones.
2: Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on.
0: So why do you like doing radio? We are rolling right along on Caregiver SOS on Air. We shift gears and flip to take 10, which follows each of our Caregiver SOS on Air programs. I'm Ron Aaron. Joining us on our Caregiver SOS on Air hotline, Dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known psychotherapist, a specialist in addictions and deals with caregiving as well, and Carol Zerniel, our co-host here on Caregiver SOS on Air. And you've got a topic dealing with depression.
1: Well, this came out of the New York Times. It was a headline that caught my eye that said, depression is poorly diagnosed and often goes untreated. And we do talk about depression from time to time. We've talked about it on the past on the show. But I don't, you know, I think it's important for everyone, everyone, everyone to (laughs) to understand that uh, what depression is, what it isn't. And the, you know... That how detrimental it can be if left untreated. Um, And Jamie, this is is right in the middle of of your specialty. So why is it that depression is poorly diagnosed, and why does it go untreated?
4: Well, first of all, I don't want to get too deep into the psychosocial nature, the sociological issues around mental illness and shame and stigma and how it has become somewhat of a, you know, a concept that's detached from our health care. But you know, sadness is something that we all experience, Carol. And it's a normal reaction you know, to to difficult times, and and usually it does pass with time. I mean, we all have this sort of feeling that you know we have ups and downs in life. Uh, but when the person has the, the depression, it interferes with their their entire life, their daily functioning. Uh, it causes pain for people, and and you know it's a real illness. And I think that's the most difficult thing for usually the patient. Uh, certainly psychiatrists understand this and and neurologists and good physicians that this is a a real illness but you know it's not a sign of a person's weakness or character flaw so what we've done I think is short shrifted depression as opposed to heart conditions or kidney or endocrine, you know or you name it infectious disease issues we've not seen it in the medical light Um, and so Signs and symptoms are popping up all around us, and we, we really need to understand it better.
0: Now, speaking of understanding it, if you could give us the 411 on what is depression.
4: Well, I guess on the symptomatic place, Ron, it's, it's let's say you're feeling sad and anxious or have an empty mood. Um, that could be a situational depression, something that when you say situational, obviously it means it's, a, it's, exa- it's exacerbated. A condition that's already there. Feelings of hopelessness, you know, pessimism, guilt, worthlessness, helplessness. When these issues, you know, continue for uh, at least two weeks or greater, and that is what we say in the DSM-5 is the, the clinical criteria for assessment and evaluation. When these loss of interest and, and pleasure in life and decreased energy and sleep patterns are in the disarray, this is when we really need to go get the proper assessment. evaluation. And again, all too often we seem to be doing that sometimes with our our primary care physician instead of a a well-trained psychiatrist.
0: DSM-5 is what?
4: Well that's called the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Psychology. It's how we actually code disorders and and clinical issues, uh, much like the CPT codes. But this is how we we describe to mostly insurance industry, if you will, and then uh, you know medical necessity in our world, psychological necessity.
1: Well, you know, depression is important for caregivers to know about because it often goes hand in hand with a chronic illness. We know that what we call comorbidity, both depression and diabetes, having depression and Alzheimer's, having depression and cancer. That depression, you know, really is the uh, you know, a companion of so many chronic illnesses. And we treat the chronic illness, but we're not doing anything for the depression. And what the New York Times is saying is that of those even when they diagnose depression, only about twenty eight percent of the people get any treatment at all, which means the vast majority of people aren't getting anything for their depression that goes along with everything else.
4: And that's a huge shame because depression, even the most severe cases, Carol, uh, is extraordinarily treatable. I mean, we've come a long way in the world of psychopharmacology and therapy and understanding the biopsychosocial nature of, of depression. Um, You know, most adults, you know, see improvement in their their symptoms when they use an antidepressant medication. It it should not be looked at as something that alters a person's state of consciousness. Medication should be looked at as something that replaces the serotonin, which, you know, the neurotransmitter, the issues like, I don't get too deep into it, like GABA and norepinephrine or epinephrine in our brains. That's what the medication does. It just picks up where... Uh, our body
1: has a deficit. Well, I can remember we applied for a grant to look at what just primary care physicians could do in addressing depression because it is so prevalent, um, particularly in the elderly population. And at WellMed, we see mostly older patients. Um, And the uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, that had the grant, the reviewer came back to us and said, "Well, you know, that's really not interesting enough to study. Um, you know, we needed something that was sexy or something more interesting, some good multiple personality disorder, schizophrenia. You know, something with a good big name that you could that was really affects a small number of people, tiny number, a, as opposed to the large population of people that we see that have depression. So, you know, when I when I think about it, that that's a huge problem." Um, within our government that's supposedly looking out for the health care of folks that they're not recognizing depression as something that is you know should be looked at more closely
0: hold that thought dr and jamie let me remind folks who've just joined us you're listening to take 10 on caregiver sos on air on 9:30 a.m the answer dr jamie heisman ron aaron and carol zerniel are with you now jamie
4: no it's sad to say you know hear what you're saying which is totally true and major depressive disorder, I think it's the most common mental disorder in the United States, literally. I mean, and people just do not want to feel alone. Uh, the issues of chronic illness, which, you know, and, 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 and how it disconnects us from society, one take 10 that we recently did, um, it, it really is it's a difficult thing to, to, to not be treated, not to be assessed and evaluated, and, and not to get the proper, you know, psychopharmacological remedy. Living with depression is overwhelming. And what you said with the, the issues of comorbidity, we, we don't know which comes first, but we feel much more comfortable in treating the medical issue and then just leaving the psychological issue for the family, friends, if you will, and people around them to deal with.
0: Because they don't see depression as a brain disease.
4: They don't. And yeah, you know, if you're really uh, strong in, in what you do, and I think you well met, and other, obviously, good medical delivery systems that understand that depression can put somebody right into the hospital um, and, and, and the anxiety associated with the depression, we're now looking at it closer and, and closer. And, and to your point, Carol, you know, you're right. Uh, I don't know why they didn't think it was sexy enough, but kind of like our, our current elections, I guess, that you have to do things so over well to the top to get noticed. Uh, but primary care doctors should be trained very extensively by psychiatrists, To understand you know depression because that's going to be the first doorway somebody will go through
1: so what is it going to take to move to get rid of the stigma associated with mental illness why is it we're still you know disassociating the head with the rest of our body when it comes to physical health because obviously our brains are kind of important regard to our physical health
4: well, I hope it doesn't take the same celebrity, you know, sort of red carpet stuff where we have to come out with Ronald Reagan and Alzheimer's or Patty Duke and bipolar. I, that's extraordinarily helpful, don't get me wrong, it normalizes in people's minds that, you know, depression is, is a part of somebody's life. Um, But I think that we really have to start doing what you're saying, the the non-sexy programs, to understand the persistency of depression in society, and especially in our senior population. I think we need to do really concerted studies uh, in primary care environments, if you will, uh, of exactly how this reduces costs, creates better quality of life for the person, and actually better quality of delivery of care. It just has to be normalized. And I think to do that, obviously, there's a lot of public service announcements that need to occur and a lot of organizations that need to get involved. Uh, The National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, I've been part of that organization for almost 35 years, is, is one great one. There's mental health associations, but they can't do it in their own silos. They do need other groups to bring them into the mainstream.
1: Well, on the good news front, there are medical groups like WellMed who are making depression screening part of the annual exam so that we do get a baseline. We can tell if someone's getting worse. And if somebody does score poorly, they can get referred for assistance. Got to
0: stop you both right there. Take 10 on... Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Ron Aaron along with Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zornio. We appreciate you joining us. Remember, podcasts of all of our shows are available, including Take 10, which can be a standalone podcast as well. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel for another edition of Caregiver SOS On
4: Air on 930 AM The Answer.